0: Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to our podcast series, Faculty and Research. This week, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. James Habiah Emana, an associate professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy here at Georgetown. His research is focused on identifying low-cost strategies to address barriers to better health and education outcomes in developing countries. He's currently working on research to understand the effectiveness of centralized and decentralized programs towards those ends, including the role of leadership to improve teacher performance in East Africa, as well as how electoral incentives shape the design and implementation of education and health policies in Tanzania and India. So James, welcome to our little podcast series. Uh, we're we're delighted to have you here. I wonder if we could start just uh, sort of giving us a sense uh, of how you came to develop interest in this field. Mm-hmm. When did this become of interest to you?
1: Thank you very much, Bob. I'm very happy to be here too. Um, so there are three things that in some ways have shaped my research interests. I, the first is the environment that I grew up in. I, I was born in a, south, a small town in southwestern Uganda that had challenges with electricity and running water. I went to a boarding school that didn't have, uh, you know, where we used kerosene lamps and had to go to bed very early, uh, seven o'clock every night and had to fetch water. And, and, and that, that's, I think, one piece of, of kind of the issues that I, in some ways have shaped my, my interest. Perhaps more important than the environment was my family. My my parents uh, regaled uh, my sisters and I with stories uh, about their heroes, and in some ways, you know, starting with my grandfather, who was a health inspector in the colonial regime, who went around from house to house, making sure that you know households had good sanitation and hygiene, and and, and in some ways had. Good access to public health, and so he—he he in some ways is, I think, has more than anybody else shaped my uh, my research interest. But my parents, I think, were constantly talking about other heroes, and I—and I think I, I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but but for twists of fate, I I think I I happened to to follow and I think pick up on some of the things that I thought inspired my 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 parents, and and engineering was in fact. The field that that I first pursued as as a student. So and, what
0: what what age were you here in engineering? This was as a undergraduate, what yes. we would call an undergraduate. Yes. So
1: so my first, you know, I I think from the time I think I was about seven years old, I was set on on becoming an engineer and. And engineers, in some ways, essentially could provide a, a civil engineer, not, you know, there are lots of other engineering. I mean, so in some ways, we provide, you know, a range of solutions across different domains. But, you know, the physical environment that I grew up in was a really big part of, of, of what I, in some ways, influenced my taste for civil engineering. And I remember having a very random encounter with an Italian gentleman when I was 16 doing a holiday uh, job, uh, you know, Literally directing traffic. You know, there were these trucks that used to drive in from from Kenya and with imports for for various clients. And they literally didn't know their way around town. And my job as a 16-year-old was to say, "Well, you want to go to the Italian embassy? I know where that is." So this was an entrepreneurial act on your part, probably too, right? Yes, but I, I did get a lot of help. I mm. I, I I I did budge at my parents to say, "Please find me a job." I, really, I you know I had two or three months off from school, and I thought I I wanted to do something, and uh, I think my. You know, my parents reluctantly must have raised this with one of their friends, and they was like, Oh, no, no, this, we, we, we uh, work in the clearing and forwarding industry, sort of import and export, and, you know, we could use a young guy like him. And, and this Italian guy happened to be an engineer, um, and, and he started to talk about, and he was a civil engineer, and he started to talk about, you know, the importance of civil engineering, not in sort of solving physical uh, problems but also in, in shaping health outcomes and and that for me was a really powerful idea which is to say that you know the, the built up environment provides opportunities to manage the flow of water to affect mosquito growth and malaria and of course you know broadly the, the sanitation and hygiene benefits and, I th- and he said you know a civil engineer is is much more important than a set of doctors because if he does the, if they do their job well they in some ways will prevent a lot of, of, of
0: illness and, and, and medical. So it, it's interesting that you remember this so clearly. So this must have been an emotional point or something. That, that This was really a turning point in your thinking about life, I guess. Yes, this was a, a big turning point for me because
1: I, I think I had always been torn. I think medicine growing up, uh, my, my father's brother was, in, uh, was a medical doctor, and my, my sisters in fact <laughs> uh, both sort of pursued medicine. My father was a v- veterinarian. I think you know medicine in some ways was the vocation that was I think most highly valued. and so I had been inspired by earlier stories about engineering and certainly my physical environment, was a big driver of this. But this conversation I think made it easy for me to say, you know, this is a good way to go and I can actually have a conversation with my parents about why this is even more important than medicine.
0: And so it might be good for our listeners, actually, to, to have a little detour in this conversation about the role of randomized control trials in, in, in the field and how within the discipline of economics, that has risen in stature and almost a demanded feature of causal inference. now, And you were sort of right there at that transition. Well, your own life is a transition, right, right. from that. So to, to the uninitiated, how do you describe the importance of... Uh, the discipline of, of, of such a uh, a randomized control trial for the kind of work that is so important in developmental economics.
1: Right. So in some ways I think even though there is a big discussion and a big debate in my field about is this the gold standard, I think I think the language around this is the gold standard actually sort of triggers I think a lot of unhelpful conversations. But a big part of I think why we think this is a good way to answer questions is that in, and in, in some ways it is not as technically demanding as some of the other strategies we've always used. And I think that's always been an issue. In fact, as a young scholar going on the job market, there was always a concerned that presenting a paper in which you had a randomized controlled design did not allow you to kind of illustrate your ability to think as a, an economist in, in, in the same way. And so that was a, a bit of a challenge. But the motivation is really in thinking about how in the field of the medical sciences we've you know discovered important solutions by literally using uh, th- this design. To, to to really kind of establish that the only reason in, you know, outcomes are different is because of, of, of this random assignment to one group or the other. And so I, I think that's in some ways the the simple response, which is say that for, for questions for which this is feasible, and, I, and I, I do understand that in some ways the biggest questions in our field are not questions for which random control trials are, are feasible. In some ways, the big questions are about you know, why countries are poor uh, and others are rich, and how do essentially kind of you know how do uh, poor countries become rich, and and those are things for which we you know random assignment is not feasible. So it's it's even though this methodology has become quite dominant, I I, do, I don't think in some ways that this is the only way that we can answer questions, and, and there are clearly a lot of really important questions. For which we need the other methods, which you know. In some ways, I feel like economists have made some contributions to to the you know statistical theory and uh, an application. And I think that's 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 not going to go away. But for a lot of the questions that I answer in my work, you know, such what is the binding constraint? to how a pregnant mother uh, attending a, a hospital to give birth to her baby or or get vaccinations or what is the key constraint to a child being able to learn how to read you know after two two or three years in school i think we want the best and and the most reliable ways to actually answer those questions and and I think a randomized controlled trial, in some ways, you know, especially since we don't understand the underlying production or theory that, in some ways, you know, you know we have a, a rough sense that a bunch of inputs and their outputs, but we don't really know how well those interact. And so I think if you, if you had very clear theory that was you know, if you think about you know the, the kinds of theories we have in the physical sciences, where we can write down in a very closed form solution how an outcome is affected by a set of inputs, then we wouldn't need randomized controlled trials. Right? Mm-hmm. We just need good good measurement. But especially in the context we work in, where we you know there's just a lot of unknowns and uh, things that are very difficult to measure, I think a randomized control trial is really
0: the, yeah. the way to go. So it occurs to me just. Listening to you, that you're probably having to learn new fields with each new problem you take on, and some of these are quite far afield from economics. I, I think so. Give us a sense uh, how you do that, and, mm-hmm. and uh, do you seek out collaborators who have complementary skills? Do you do you self-teach? And yes, you know, so how, how do you? take on a problem that requires a whole new learning on your part? I think the the,
1: the the short answer is that I really seek collaborations with people who know how to do this well and I'm always very eager to learn from uh, a variety of different people about how they do research in in, in those domains. I, I'm very interested in, in, in health outcomes and a lot of the work I do uh, sometimes is motivated by, you know, I start a project on say, you know, 10 years ago I used to work on HIV and AIDS and I would start a project you know, around the work that I wanted to do around HIV and AIDS, but that always brought me in contact with people who were working on the health side uh, of, of that problem. And, you know, the, usually the first encounter is quite a negative one. Uh, everybody walks away sort of thinking, you know, the other, per- the other person is full of themselves and, uh, and you know, thinks their work is more interesting than everybody else's. But usually there is a, a, coming, a meeting of minds around, you know, common interests. And so, I I think I've been lucky that I've been able to interact with people who are actually willing to collaborate, willing to, you know, I think when you deal with, especially guys who are running RCTs in the medical field, I think they think of... Economists, as people who will provide the cost-effectiveness analysis, and, and and don't have any
0: other sort of useful a research assistant with yeah, useful pre- skills. Yeah, pretty much exactly. You
1: know, they they're good for a paragraph in in, in the paper, and that's uh, and that's about it. But and also, I, th- I think it's been useful, even though it's it's taken some convincing. It's taken on learning a language, about how to talk to people and essentially kind of be understood. And and I think I have been lucky that uh, to to meet people. I, it hasn't always happened. I, I think I've had interactions with. With people i wanted to collaborate with, but it didn't didn't work out. But I, it, it's really important for me to to see how they do their work, and I, in, in some ways, I feel like my approach to to doing RCTs in uh, in the social sciences has been very heavily influenced, and maybe too much, because sometimes when I submit a paper to a an econ journal, they say, no, this is not the language we use uh. Uh, for, for for certain things. And so, and so. no, I, I, I'm very eager to learn, you know, some of the things that are really important are things around measurement. And I think economists are used to, especially if you're working in a field where nobody else has done it, you sit down and you write your own survey. And that's, you know, sort of standard. But in certain fields like sanitation or HIV, I think, and you know, I think people have developed some very, very careful, and in, in some ways... I think they benefit a lot from the fact that there's a lot of replication, and so there's quite a lot of work being done to generate uh, more precise ways of measuring things. And so I've really appreciated learning Mm-hmm. a lot of those techniques from
0: collaborators. Let, let's switch to another side of your life. So uh, we've mainly been talking about your re- research passions and interests, but you're a faculty member here at Georgetown. You have students, you offer classes, you do service as a faculty member. And I'm fascinated with how different people juggle those different balls at the same time and, and remain productive and in, in, on all three domains. So tell us a bit of of what you learned, maybe when you first started, uh, that you didn't know at the time about how to effectively juggle those three right. obligations. Right.
1: So I think I think the, the the greatest challenge I think in starting in in coming straight from a PhD program to uh, becoming a faculty member is not so much on the service side. I think you know m- most colleagues are understanding enough to 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 give you advice on and what service you should accept but also in in some ways in allocating you service um requirements that are that are not onerous at, at least to begin with and, and so the challenge in some ways was the teaching which is to say that you know while I taught in uh, as as a grad student I, I didn't teach as much and i didn't have full responsibility for Uh, for the course and and to deal with student problems and and so that that was a a big learning curve for me but i had a lot of help and i i think having colleagues who had taught classes that i was teaching and who were very willing to sit down with you and help you navigate you know the one challenging case here or there was really powerful for me but (laughs) You know, in terms of juggling the, I guess, the research, teaching, and and the service, uh, you know, it it certainly is a struggle, even 15 years on. I I, I don't always feel uh, as productive uh, in in either domain. Uh, I think you're constantly being pulled. The kind of work I do, the kind of research I do that requires me to travel every now and again during the semester uh, certainly kind of throws uh, a lot of the other challenges uh, into kind of... a a, a real difficult balancing act because you're away for a week even if you do travel for three or four days to Tanzania that's still a week away um, but in in some ways, it's I think you learn how to structure your classes, you learn how to talk to your students about you know and and, and and you also have a willingness to to have three or four makeup classes to account for the one week year away. But but I think relying on your colleagues and, and, and in some ways, I, I do think that my colleagues have made it really easy for me to be able to do this because and you know we all have the same challenges. I can ask a friend to you know, guest lecture uh every now and again and so that that makes it that makes it possible okay. but i would still say it is a it's i i still think i am learning how to manage this well but i i do think that having a very collaborative environment in my department uh, has been the most important uh, way in which I've actually been able to balance things. So why
0: don't you give me a sense of what uh, what you're working on right now? so what what's the coolest thing you're doing? What are you excited about uh, doing? What do you find yourself thinking about at odd moments?
1: the The most interesting thing that I'm thinking about right now is I guess there, there, there are two things. I think one is a mythological one and and the other in some ways is a I, I think a new set of questions that i'm that i'm I would like to pursue. Uh, on the methodological side, I think you know machine learning has throws up some really interesting prospects for the, some of the work that we do. And most of the work, in some ways, you know, machine learning is really good at prediction, uh, and I think we're really you know uh, most of what we're interested in is looking at you know slopes and 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 effects of things on, on on outcomes. But you know, there is some interesting work being done that in some ways is kind of integrating those two things, and so um, you know over the you know, 10 or uh, so years I've been collecting a lot of data. I've, you know, accumulated some interesting sets of data uh, that I think may be, uh, that I'm, I'm very, very eager to bring some of these machine learning techniques to, to you know, in, in the past I used this data to answer kind of a very straightforward question, which is what's the average effect of this program on women delivering in facilities. But what's interesting, I think, about machine learning is in some ways sort of predicting uh, variation in effects across different categories of, of, of individuals and, and facilities. Uh, and so I'm really, you know, the, the thing that I'm most excited about right now is in some ways sort of taking a lot of these, learning these methods, That that's, that's uh, one source of excitement. Uh, but in some ways the second is really understanding you know, are there groups that in fact are hurt by this program? Are there groups that in some ways gain quite a lot by this program? And you know, one of one of the interesting uh, things I'm doing on is looking at a teacher incentive program in secondary schools in Tanzania, where it looks like in fact the schools that are, don't have very strong kids, you know, the the schools that are performing. Uh, pretty poorly. In fact, are hurt by teacher incentive programs. Uh, whereas schools that are are doing pretty well, in fact, you know, have pretty large gains. I mean, you know, inc- you know. But when you look at the average effect, it actually looks pretty modest uh, across these two groups. And so, it, it it you know, and that's a think of teacher incentive programs as a kind of way to really get a lot of effort in environments where teachers are not providing a lot of effort. But in fact, you know, this is suggesting that those programs, in fact, could increase inequality in, uh, between schools.
0: Yeah. Well this has been delightful. I thank you so much for joining us and uh, I wish you well on your mission. Thank you for being with us. Well thank you very much.